The History of Standard Oil by Ida M. Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter One, Part Two. If the uses to which oil might be put, and the methods for manufacturing it, had not been well understood when the Drake well was struck, there would have been no such imperious demand as came for the immediate opening of new territory and developing methods of handling and carrying it on a large scale. But men already knew what the oil was good for, and in a crude way how to distill it. The process of distillation also was free to all. The essential apparatus was very simple, a cast-iron still, usually surrounded by brickwork, a copper worm, and two tin or zinc-lined tanks. The still was filled with crude oil, which was subjected to a high enough heat to vaporize it. The vapor passed through a cast-iron gooseneck fitted to the top of the still into the copper worm, which was immersed in water. Here the vapor was condensed and passed into the zinc-lined tank. This product, called a distillate, was treated with chemicals washed with water, and run off into the tin-lined tank where it was allowed to settle. Anybody who could get the apparatus could make oil, and many men did, badly of course to begin with, and with an alarming proportion of waste and explosion in fires, but with experience they learned, and some of the great refineries of the country grew out of these rude beginnings. Luckily not all the men who undertook the manufacturing of petroleum in these first days were inexperienced. The chemists to whom are due chiefly the processes now used, Atwood, Gessner, and Merrill, had for many years been busy making oils from coal. They knew something of petroleum, and when it came in quantities began at once to adapt their processes to it. Merrill at the time was connected with Samuel Downer of Boston in manufacturing oil from Trinidad pitch and from coal bought in Newfoundland. The year oil was discovered, Mr. Downer distilled 7,500 tons of this coal, clearing on it at least $100,000. As soon as petroleum appeared, he and Mr. Merrill saw that here was a product which was bound to displace their coal, and with courage and promptness they prepared to adapt their works. In order to be near the supply they came to Corey, 14 miles from the Drake Well, and in 1862 put up a refinery which cost $250,000. Here were refined thousands of barrels of oil, most of which was sent to New York for export. To the Boston works the firm went crude, which was manufactured for the home trade and for shipping to California and Australia. The processes used in the downer works at this early day were in all essentials the same as are used today. In 1865 William Wright, after a careful study of petrolia, as the oil regions were then often called, published with Harper and Brothers an interesting volume in which he devotes a chapter to oil refining and refiners. Mr. Wright describes there not only the downer works at Corey, but a factory which, if much less important in the development of the oil regions, held a much larger place in its imagination. This was the Humboldt works at Plumer. In 1862 two German brothers, the Messrs. Ludovici, came to the oil country and, choosing a spot distant from oil wells, main roads, or water courses, erected an oil refinery which was reported to have cost a half million dollars. The works were built in a way unheard of then and uncommon now. The foundations were all of cut stone. 
the boiler and engines were of the most expensive character. A house erected in connection with the refinery was said to have been finished in hardwood with marble mantels, and furnished with rich carpets, mirrors, and elaborate furniture. The lavishness of the Humboldt refinery and the formality with which its business was conducted were long a tradition in the oil regions. Of more practical moment are the features of the refinery which Mr. Wright mentions. One is that the works had been so planned as to take advantage of the natural descent of the ground, so that the oil would pass from one set of vessels to another without using artificial power, and the other that the supply of crude oil was obtained from the tar farm three miles away, being forced by pumps through pipes over the hills. Mr. Wright found some twenty refineries between Titusville and Oil City the year of his visit, 1865. In several factories that he visited they were making naphtha, gasoline, and benzene for export. Three grades of illuminating oils, prime white, standard white, and straw color, were made everywhere. Paraffin, refined to a pure white article like that of today, was manufactured in quantities by the downer works and lubricating oils were beginning to be made. As men and means were found to put down wells, to devise and build tanks and boats and pipes and railroads for handling the oil, to adapt and improve process for manufacturing, so men were found from the beginning of the oil business to wrestle with every problem raised. They came in shoals, young, vigorous, resourceful, indifferent to difficulties, greedy for a chance, and with each year they forced more light and wealth from the new product. By the opening of 1872 they had produced nearly forty million barrels of oil, and had raised their product to the fourth place among the exports of the United States, over 152 million gallons going abroad in 1871, a percentage of the production which compares well with what goes today. As for the market, they had developed it until it included almost every country of the earth. China, the East and West Indies, South America, and Africa. Over forty different European ports received refined oil from the United States in 1871. Nearly a million gallons were sent to Syria, about a half million to Egypt, about as much to the British West Indies, and a quarter of a million to the Dutch East Indies. Not only were illuminating oils being exported. In 1871, Nearly seven million gallons of naphtha, benzene, and gasoline were sent abroad, and it became evident now for the first time that a valuable trade in lubricants made from petroleum was possible. A discovery by Joshua Merrill of the Downer Works opened this new source of wealth to the industry. Until 1869 the impossibility of deodorizing petroleum had prevented its use largely as a lubricant but in that year Mr. Merrill discovered a process by which a deodorized lubricating oil could be made. He had both the apparatus for producing the oil and the oil itself patented. The oil was so favorably received that the market sale by the Downer Works was several hundred percent greater in a single year than the firm had ever sold before. The oil field had been extended from the valley of Oil Creek and its tributaries down the Allegheny River for fifty miles and probably covered two thousand square miles. The early theory that oil followed the streams had been exploded, and wells were now drilled on the hills. It was known, too, that if oil was found in the first sand struck in the drilling, it might be found still lower in a second or third sand. 
the Drake well had struck oil at sixty-nine and a half feet, but wells were now drilled as deep as sixteen hundred feet. The extension of the field, the discovery that oil was under the hills as well as under streams, and to be found in various sands, had cost enormously. It had been done by wildcatting, as putting down experimental wells were called, by following superstitions in locating wells, such as the witch hazel stick or the spiritualistic medium, quite as much as by studying the position of wells in existence and calculating how oil belts probably ran. As the cost of a well was from three thousand to eight thousand dollars, according to its location, and as four thousand three hundred and seventy-four of the five thousand five hundred and sixty wells drilled in the first ten years of the business, eighteen fifty-nine to eighteen sixty-nine, were dry holes, or were abandoned as unprofitable, something of the daring it took to operate on small means, as most producers did in the beginning, is evident. But they loved the game, and every man of them would stake his last dollar on the chance of striking oil. With the extension of the field rapid strides had been made in tools, in rigs, in all of the various essentials of drilling a well. They had learned to use torpedoes to open up hard rocks, naphtha to cut the paraffin which coated the sand and stopped the flow of oil, seed-bags to stop the inrush of a stream of water. They lost their tools less often, and knew better how to fish for them when they did. In short, they had learned how to put down and care for oil wells. Equal advances had been made in other departments. Fewer cars were loaded with barrels. Tank cars for carrying in bulk had been invented. The wooden tank holding two hundred to twelve hundred barrels had been rapidly replaced by the great iron tank holding twenty thousand or thirty thousand barrels. The pipelines had begun to go directly to the wells instead of pumping from a general receiving station, or dump as it was called, thus saving the tedious and expensive operation of hauling. From beginning to end the business had been developed, systematized, simplified. Most important was the simplification of the transportation problem by the development of pipelines. By 1862 they were the one oil-gatherer. Several companies were carrying on the pipeline business and two of them had acquired great power in the oil regions because of their connections with trunk lines. These were the Empire Transportation Company and the Pennsylvania Transportation Company. The former, which had been the first business organization to go into the pipeline business on a large scale, was a concern which appeared in the oil regions not over six months before Van Sickle began to pump oil. The Empire Transportation Company had been organized in 1865, to build up an east and west freight traffic via the Philadelphia and Erie Railroad, a new line which had just been leased by the Pennsylvania. Some ten railroads connected in one way or another with the Philadelphia and Erie, forming direct routes east and west. In spite of their evident community of interest, these various roads were kept apart by their jealous fears of one another. Each insisted on its own timetable, its own rates, its own way of doing things. The shipper via this route must make a separate bargain with each road and often submit to having his freight changed at terminals from one car to another because of the difference of gauge. The Empire Transportation Company undertook to act as a mediator between the roads and the shipper to make the route cheap, fast, and reliable. It proposed to solicit freight, furnish its own cars and terminal facilities, 
and collect money due. It did not make rates, however. It only harmonized those made by the various branches in the system. It was to receive a commission on the business secured, and a rental for the cars and other facilities it furnished. It was a difficult task the new company undertook, but it had at its head a remarkable man to cope with difficulties. This man, Joseph D. Potts, was in 1865 thirty-six years old. He had come of a long and honorable line of ironmasters of the Schuylkill region of Pennsylvania, but had left the great forge towns with which his ancestors had been associated, Pottstown, Glasgow Forge, Valley Forge, to become a civil engineer. His profession had led him to the service of the Pennsylvania Railroad, where he had held important positions in connection with which he now undertook the organization of the Empire Transportation Company. Colonel Potts, the title came from his service in the Civil War, possessed a clear and vigorous mind. He was far-seeing, forceful in execution, fair in his dealings. To marked ability and integrity he joined a gentle and courteous nature. The first freight which the Empire Transportation Company attacked after its organization was oil. The year was a great one for the oil regions, the year of pithole. In January there had suddenly been struck on Pithole Creek in a wilderness six miles from the Allegheny River, a well located with a witch-hazel twig which produced 250 barrels a day, and oil was selling at eight dollars a barrel. Wells followed in rapid succession. In less than ten months the field was doing over ten thousand barrels a day. This sudden flood of oil caused a tremendous excitement. Crowds of speculators and investors rushed to Pithole from all over the country. The Civil War had just closed, soldiers were disbanding, and hundreds of them found their way to the new oil field. In six weeks after the first well was struck, Pithole was a town of six thousand inhabitants. In less than a year it had fifty hotels and boarding houses. Five of these hotels cost fifty thousand dollars or more each. In six months after the first well the post office of Pithole was receiving upwards of ten thousand letters per day and was counted third in size in the state, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Pithole being the order of rank. It had a daily paper, churches, all the appliances of a town. The handling of the great output of oil from the Pithole field was a serious question. There seemed not enough cars in the country to carry it, and shippers resorted to every imaginable trick to get accommodations. When the agent of the Empire Transportation Company opened his office in June 1865 and demonstrated his ability to furnish cars regularly and in large numbers, trade rapidly flowed to him. Now the Empire Agency had hardly been established when the Van Sickle pipeline began to carry oil from Pithole to the railroad. Lines began to multiply. The railroads saw at once that they were destined speedily to do all the gathering and hasten to secure control of them. Colonel Potts's first pipeline purchase was a line running from Pithole to Titusville, which as yet had not been wet. When the Empire Transportation Company took over this line, nothing had been demonstrated but that oil could be driven by relay pumps five miles through a two-inch pipe. The Empire's first effort was to get a longer run by fewer pumps. The agent in charge, C.P. Hatch, believed that oil could be brought the entire ten and one-half miles from Pithole to Titusville by one pump. 
he met with ridicule, but he insisted on trying it in the new line his company had acquired. The experiment was entirely successful. Improvements followed as rapidly as hands could carry out the suggestions of ingenuity and energy. One of the most important made the first year of business was connecting wells by pipe directly with the tanks at the pumping stations, thus doing away with the expensive hauling in barrels to the dump. A new device for accounting to the producer for his oil was made necessary by this change, and the practice of taking the gauge or measuring of the oil in the producer's tank before and after the run and issuing duplicate run tickets was devised by Mr. Hatch. The producers, however, were not all square. It sometimes happened that they sold oil by a transfer order of the pipeline, which they did not have in the line. To prevent these, the Empire Transportation Company, in 1868, began to issue certificates for credit balances of oil. These soon became the general mediums of trade in oil, and remain so today. One of the cleverest of the pipeline devices of the Empire Company was its assessment for waste and fire. In running oil through pipes there is more or less loss by leaking and evaporation. In September 1868 Mr. Hatch announced that thereafter he would deduct two percent from oil runs for wastage. The assessment raised almost a riot in the region, meetings were held, the Empire Transportation Company was denounced as a highway robber, and threats of violence were made if the order was enforced. While this excitement was in progress there came a big fire on the line. Now the company's officials had been studying the question of fire insurance from the start. Fires in the oil regions were as regular a feature of the business as explosions used to be on the Mississippi steamboats, and no regular fire insurance company would take the risk. It had been decided that at the first fire there should be announced what was called a general average assessment, that is, a fire tax, and to be ready blanks were prepared. Now in the thick of the resistance to the wastage assessment came a fire and the line announced that the producers having oil in the line must pay the insurance. The controversy at once waxed hotter than ever, but was finally compromised by the withdrawal in this case of the fire insurance if the producers would consent to the tax for waste. They did consent, and later when fires occurred the general average assessment was applied without serious opposition. Both of these practices prevail today. By the end of 1871 the Empire Transportation Company was one of the most efficient and respected business organizations in the oil country. Its chief rival was the Pennsylvania Transportation Company, an organization which had its origin in the second pipeline laid in the oil regions. This line was built by Henry Harley, a man who for fully ten years was one of the most brilliant figures in the oil country. Harley was a civil engineer by profession, a graduate of the Troy Polytechnic Institute, and had held a responsible position for some time as an assistant of General Herman Hauck in the Hoosac Tunnel. He became interested in the oil business in 1862, first as a buyer of petroleum, then as an operator in West Virginia. In 1865 he laid a pipeline from one of the rich oil farms of the creek to the railroad. It was a success, and from this venture Harley and his partner, W. H. Abbott, one of the wealthiest and most active men in the country, developed an important transportation system. 
In 1868, J. Gould, who as president of the Erie Road was eager to increase his oil freight, bought a controlling interest in the Abbott and Harley lines, and made Harley general oil agent of the Erie system. Harley now became closely associated with Fisk and Gould, and the three carried on a series of bold and piratical speculations in oil which greatly enraged the oil country. They built a refinery near Jersey City, extended their pipeline system, and in 1871, when they reorganized under the name of the Pennsylvania Transportation Company, they controlled probably the greatest number of miles of pipe of any company in the region, and then were fighting the empire bitterly for freight. There is no part of this rapid development of the business more interesting than the commercial machine the oil men had devised in 1872 for marketing oil. A man with a thousand-barrel well in his hands in 1862 was in a plight. He had got to sell his oil at once for lack of storage room or let it run on the ground, and there was no exchange, no market, no telegraph, not even a post office within his reach where he could arrange a sale. He had to depend on buyers who came to him. These buyers were the agents of the refineries in different cities or of the exporters of crude in New York. They went from well to well on horseback, if the roads were not too bad, on foot if they were, and at each place made a special bargain varying with the quantity bought and the difficulty in getting it away, for the buyer was the transporter, and as a rule furnished the barrels or boats in which he carried off his oil. It was not long before the speculative character of the oil trade, due to the great fluctuations in quantity, added a crowd of brokers to the regular buyers who tramped up and down the creek. When the railroads came in, the trains became the headquarters for both buyers and sellers. This was the more easily managed as the trains on the creek stopped at almost every oil farm. These trains became, in fact, a sort of traveling oil exchange, and on them a large percentage of all the bargaining of the business was done. The brokers and buyers first organized and established headquarters in Oil City in 1869, but there was an oil exchange in New York City as early as 1866. Titusville did not have an exchange until 1871. By this time the pipelines had begun to issue certificates for the oil they received, and the trading was done to a degree in these. The method was simple and much more convenient than the old one. The producer ran his oil into a pipeline, and for it received a certificate showing that the line held so much to his credit. This certificate was transferred when the sale was made and presented when the oil was wanted. One achievement of which the oil men were particularly proud was increasing the refining capacity of the region. At the start the difficulty of getting the apparatus for a refinery to the creek had been so enormous that the bulk of the crude had been driven to the nearest manufacturing cities, Erie, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. Much had gone to the seaboard, too, and Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore were all doing considerable refining. There was always a strong feeling in the oil regions that the refining should be done at home. Before the railroads came, the most heroic efforts were made again and again to get in the necessary machinery. Brought from Pittsburgh by water, as a rule, the apparatus had to be hauled from Oil City, where it had to be dumped on the muddy bank of the river, there were no wharfs, over the indescribable roads to the site chosen. It took weeks, months sometimes, to get in the apparatus. 
the chemicals used in the making of the oil, the barrels in which to store it, all had to be brought from outside. The wonder is that under these conditions anybody tried to refine on the creek. But refineries persisted in coming, and after the railroads came, increased. By 1872 the daily capacity had grown to nearly 10,000 barrels, and there were no more complete or profitable plants in existence than two or three of those on the creek. The only points having larger daily capacity were Cleveland and New York City. Several of the refineries had added barrel works. Assets were made on the ground. Ironworks at Oil City and Titusville promised soon to supply the needs of both drillers and refiners. The exultation was great, and the press and people boasted that the day would soon come when they would refine for the world. There, in their own narrow valleys, should be made everything which petroleum would yield. Cleveland, Pittsburgh, the seaboard, must give up refining. The business belonged to the oil regions, and the oil men meant to take it. A significant development in the region was the tendency among many of the oil men to combine different branches of the business. Several large producers conducted shipping agencies for handling their own and other people's oil. The firm of Pearson Nahart was a prominent one carrying on this double business in the sixties and early seventies. J. J. Vandergriff, who has been mentioned already as one of the first men to take hold of the transportation problem, early became interested in production. As soon as the pipeline was demonstrated to be a success, he began building lines. He also added to his interest a large refinery, the Imperial of Oil City. Captain Vandergriff, by 1870, produced, transported, and refined his own oil, as well as transported and refined much of other people's. It was a common practice for a refinery in the oil regions to pipe oil directly to its works by its own line, and in 1872 one refinery in Titusville, the Octave, carried its refined oil a mile or more by pipe to the railroad. Although most of the refineries at this period sold their products to dealers and exporters, the building up of markets by direct contact with new territory was beginning to be a consideration with all large manufacturers. The Octave of Titusville, for instance, chartered a ship in 1872 to load with oil and send in charge of its own agent into South American ports. The odds against the oilmen in developing the business had not been merely physical ones. There had been more than the wilderness to conquer, more than the possibilities of a new product to learn. Over all the early years of their struggle and hardships hovered the dark cloud of the Civil War. They were so cut off from men that they did not hear of the fall of Sumter for four days after it happened, and the news for the time blotted out interest even in flowing wells. Twice at least when Lee invaded Pennsylvania the whole business came to a standstill, men abandoning the drill, the pump, the refinery to make ready to repel the invader. They were taxed for the war, taxes rising to ten dollars per barrel in 1865, one dollar on crude and twenty cents a gallon on refined, the oil barrel is usually estimated at forty-two gallons. They gave up their quota of men again and again at the call for recruits, and when the end came and a million men were cast on the country, this little corner of Pennsylvania absorbed a larger portion of men probably than any other spot in the United States. 
the soldier was given the first chance everywhere at work he was welcomed into oil companies stock being given him for the value of his war record there were lieutenants and captains and majors even generals scattered all over the field and the field felt itself honored and bragged as it did of all things of the number of privates and officers who immediately on disbanding had turned to it for employment it was not only the civil war from which the oil regions had suffered in eighteen seventy the franco-prussian war broke the foreign market to pieces and caused great loss to the whole industry and there had been other troubles from the first oil men had to contend with wild fluctuations in the price of oil in eighteen fifty nine it was twenty dollars a barrel and in eighteen sixty one it had averaged fifty-two cents two years later in eighteen sixty three it averaged eight dollars and fifteen cents and in eighteen sixty seven but two dollars and forty cents in all these first twelve years nothing like a steady price could be depended on for just as the supply seemed to have approached a fixed amount a wildcat well would come in and knock the bottom out of the market such fluctuations were the natural element of the speculator and he came early buying in quantities and holding in storage tanks for higher prices if enough oil was held or if production fell off up went the price only to be knocked down by the throwing of great quantities of stocks on the market the producers themselves often held their oil though not always to their own profit a historic case of obstinate holding occurred in eighteen seventy one on the mccray farm the most productive field in the region at that time prices were hovering around three dollars and mccray swore he would not sell under five dollars he bought hired and built iron tankage until he had upward of two hundred thousand barrels there was great loss from leakage and from evaporations and there were taxes but mccray held on refusing four dollars four dollars and fifty cents and even five dollars evil times came in the oil region soon after and with them dollar oil mccray finally was obliged to sell his stocks at about a dollar twenty cents per barrel to develop a business in face of such fluctuations and speculations in the raw product took not only courage it took a dash of the gambler it never could have been done of course had it not been for the streams of money which flowed unceasingly and apparently from choice into the regions in eighteen sixty five mr wright calculated that the oil country was using a capital of one hundred million dollars in eighteen seventy two the oil men claimed the capital in operation was two hundred million dollars it has been estimated that in the first decade of the industry nearly three hundred and fifty million dollars was put into it speculation in oil stock companies was another great evil it reached its height in eighteen sixty four and eighteen sixty five the flush times of the business stocks in companies whose holdings were hardly worth the stamps on the certificates were sold all over the land in march eighteen sixty five the aggregate capital of the oil companies whose charters were on file in albany new york was three hundred and fifty million dollars and in philadelphia alone in eighteen sixty four and eighteen sixty five one thousand oil companies mostly bogus are said to have been formed these swindles were dignified by the names of officers of distinction in the united states army for the war was coming to an end 
and the name of a general was the most popular and persuasive argument in the country. Of course there came a collapse. The oil bubble burst in 1866, and it was nothing but the irrepressible energy of the region which kept the business going in the panic which followed. Then there was the disturbing effect of foreign competition. What would become of them if oil was found in quantities in other countries? A decided depression of the market occurred in 1866, when the government sent out reports of developments of foreign oil fields. If there was oil in Japan, China, Burma, Persia, Russia, Bavaria, in the quantities the government reports said, why, there was trouble in store for Pennsylvania, the oil men argued, and for a day the market fell. It was only for a day. Men forgot easily in the oil regions in the sixties. An evil in their business which they were only beginning to grasp fully in 1871 was the unholy system of freight discrimination which the railroads were practicing. Three trunk lines competed for the business by 1872. The Pennsylvania, which at least the Philadelphia and Erie, the Erie, and the Central. The latter road reached the oil regions by a branch from Ashtabula on the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Division to Oil City. This branch was completed in 1868. The Pennsylvania claimed the oil traffic as a natural right, for the oil regions were in Pennsylvania, and did not Tom Scott own that state? The Erie Road for about five years had been in the hands of those splendid pirates, Jay Gould and Jim Fisk. Naturally they took all they could get of the oil traffic and took it by freebooting methods. Corners and rings were their favorite devices for securing trade, and more than once their aid had carried through daring and unscrupulous speculations in oil. The Central in this period was waging its famous desperate war on the Erie, Commodore Vanderbilt having marked that highway for his own along with most other things in New York State. All three of the roads began as early as 1868 to use secret rebates on the published freight rates in oil as a means of securing traffic. This practice had gone on until in 1871 any big producer, refiner, or buyer could bully a freight agent into a special rate those on the inside, those who had poles, also secured special rates. The result was that the open rate was enforced only on the innocent and the weak. Serious as all these problems were, there was no discouragement or shrinking from them. The oil men had rid themselves of bunco men and burst the oil bubbles. They had harnessed the brokers in exchanges and made strict rules to govern them. They had learned not to fear the foreigners, or to take with equal sang-froid the dry hole which made them poor, or the gusher which made them rich. For every evil they had a remedy. They were not afraid even of the railroads, and loudly declared that if the discriminations were not stopped they would build a railroad of their own. Indeed the evils in the oil business in 1871, far from being a discouragement, rather added to the interest. They had never known anything but struggle, with conquest, and twelve years of it was far from cooling their ardor for a fair fight. More had been done in the oil regions in the first dozen years than the development of a new industry. From the first there had gone with the oilmen's ambition to make oil to light the whole earth, a desire to bring civilization to the wilderness from which they were drawing wealth, 
to create an orderly society from the mass of humanity which poured pell-mell into the region. A hatred of indecency first drew together the better element of each of the rough communities which sprang up. Whiskey-sellers and women flocked to the region at the breaking out of the excitement. Their first shelters were shanties built on flatboats which were towed from place to place. They came to Roostville, a collection of pine shanties and oil derricks built on a muddy flat, as forlorn and disreputable a town in appearance as the earth ever saw. They tied up for trade, and the next morning woke up from their brawl to find themselves twenty miles away, floating down the Allegheny River. Roosville meant to be decent. She had cut them loose, and by such summary vigilance she kept herself decent. Other towns adopted the same policy. By common consent vice was corralled largely in one town. Here a whole street was given up to dance-houses and saloons, and those who must have a spree were expected to go to Petroleum Center to take it. Decency and schools. Vice cut adrift, they looked for a schoolteacher. Children were sadly out of place, but there they were, and these men, fighting for a chance, saw to it that a shanty with a schoolteacher in it was in every settlement. It was not long, too, before there was a church, a union church. To worship God was their primal instinct, to defend a creed, a later development. In the beginning every social contrivance was wanting. There were no policemen, and each individual looked after evildoers. There were no firemen, and every man turned out with a bucket at a fire. There were no bankers, and each man had to put his wealth away as best he could until a peripatetic banker from Pittsburgh relieved him. At one time Dr. Egbert, a rich operator, is said to have had one million eight hundred thousand dollars in currency in his house. There were no hospitals, and in 1861, when the horrible possibilities of the oil fire were first demonstrated by the burning of the Rouse Well, a fire at which nineteen persons lost their lives, the many injured found welcome and care for long weeks in the little shanties of women already overburdened by the difficulties of caring for families in the rough community. Out of this poverty and disorder they had developed in ten years a social organization as good as their commercial. Titusville, the hamlet on whose outskirts Drake had drilled his well, was now a city of ten thousand inhabitants. It had an opera house, where in 1871 Clara Louise Kellogg and Christine Nilsson sang, Joe Jefferson and Janoshek played, and Wendell Phillips and Bishop Simpson spoke. It had two prosperous and fearless newspapers. Its schools prepared for college. Oil City was not behind, and between them was a string of lively towns. Many of the oil farms had a decent community life. The Columbia Farm kept up a library and reading room for its employees. There was a good schoolhouse used on Sunday for services, and there was a Columbian farm band of no mean reputation in the oil regions. Indeed, by the opening of 1872, life in the oil regions had ceased to be a mere makeshift. Comforts in orderliness and decency, even opportunities for education and for social life, were within reach. It was a conquest to be proud of, quite as proud of as they were of the fact that their business had been developed until it had never before, on the whole, 
been in so satisfactory a condition. Nobody realized more fully what had been accomplished in the oil regions than the oil men themselves. Nobody rehearsed their achievements so loudly. In ten years, they were fond of saying, we have built this business up from nothing to a net product of six millions of barrels per annum. We have invented and devised all the apparatus, the appliances, the forms needed for a new industry. We use a capital of two hundred million and support a population of sixty thousand people. To keep up our supply we drill one hundred new wells per month at an average cost of six thousand dollars each. We are fourth in the exports of the United States. We have developed a foreign market including every civilized country on the globe, but what had been done was, in their judgment, only a beginning. Life ran swift and ruddy and joyous in these men. They were still young, most of them under forty, and they looked forward with all the eagerness of the young who have just learned their powers to years of struggle and development. They would solve all these perplexing problems of overproduction, of railroad discrimination, of speculation. They would meet all their own needs. They would bring the oil refining to the region where it belonged. They would make their towns the most beautiful in the world. There was nothing too good for them, nothing they did not hope and dare. But suddenly, at the very heyday of this confidence, a big hand reached out from nobody knew where to steal their conquest and throttle their future. The suddenness and the blackness of the assault on their business stirred to the bottom their manhood and their sense of fair play, and the whole region arose in a revolt which is scarcely paralleled in the commercial history of the United States. End of chapter 1 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com